You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 17th of May, 2016. I'm Benjamin Riley. I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about Eurovision and how queer communities in the West can support the struggles of queers in other parts of the world. Eurovision, or as my partner likes to call it, the uh, biggest gay holiday of the year, uh, was hosted in Sweden over the weekend. Once again, European politics dominated the content uh, the contest, with the Ukraine entrant Jamala winning the competition. Jamala won with the song 1944, which was about the forced deportation of the Crimean Tatars by the Stalin regime in 1944, as you can guess by the date. Uh, Jamala also openly stated that her song was providing commentary on the situation in Crimea today. But it is in the area of queer politics that we want to talk about today. The issue of Russia's anti-gay legislation uh, that people are probably aware of reared its head in this year's contest. Over the past few years, the Russian entrant has been routinely booed by fans, and there were significant concerns this would happen again this year. While in the end this was largely avoided, at least on TV, many gay fans decided specifically not to vote for the Russian entrant, who was one of the favourites because of Russia's anti-gay laws. This got Ben and I thinking about how we in Western countries should react when other countries, particularly in the non-Western world, engage in anti-gay repression. Uh, Does booing at Eurovision or boycotting major events help or hurt the cause? And how can we best support our queer comrades around the world? We want to note here, of course, that both of us are from Australia and neither have great connections with queer communities from non-Western countries. So we're talking a bit from the outside, but even talking as outside as we think it's worth thinking about where to start in this discussion. Um, So let's get started. Uh, Ben, did you watch Eurovision? Uh, And if so, uh, would you have booed the Russian entrant? I didn't watch Eurovision. I'm not a huge Eurovision fan. Um, I kind of have been to Eurovision parties in the past and quite have quite enjoyed them, but, you know, honestly, I, I couldn't care less. I, I don't have particularly strong feelings about the, the competition. Um, I, If I was there, I have to kind of imagine a version of myself that would care enough to have, like, a vocal response to any of the competitors in Eurovision. Um, but... I don't know. I think it's it's interesting because I think the booing is kind of a symptom of something else. But I think so to take like the distinction between booing and boycotts, for example, not that I want to kind of dive straight into that. This is a kind of toe in the water way to start the conversation. But um, whilst I think they're kind of symptoms of a similar way of people in a country like Australia engaging with the situation of, of queer communities in other parts of the world, I think they're kind of substantively different. Um, so to be honest, I, you know, whilst I probably wouldn't have done it, I, I mean, I don't have, it's, it's a little tacky maybe, but I, I don't have a huge um, issue with people booing a, an entrant. I mean, I feel like in a competition like that, it's all kind of part of the fun. I mean, how about you? Um, well, I think we should start here by saying, I, you know, I feel like we could have an entire podcast about Eurovision and why you're wrong about Eurovision and why it's <laughs> amazing and perfect and everything that we should be watching all the time uh, and how it is the best weekend of the year. Um, but, you know, we can we can put that aside. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to hold back and, you know, and, and not not have a go at you too much throughout the episode um, because, you know, we've got to, We've got to have a serious podcast. We do. Uh, we're serious people. Simon. Um, but so yes, uh, naturally I did watch Eurovision. I watched it twice. I got up at five o'clock in the morning to watch the, watch it live, oh uh, and, um, thoroughly enjoyed it with some friends and then, uh, went to a sort of an event hosted by 
the uh, National Film and Sound Archive uh, in Canberra alongside the Swedish Embassy um, on Sunday night, where they oh had there was there was like hundreds of people uh, watching Crazy. it. It was great fun. Um, it was really good fun because you had like we sat in this theater and people um, they had like European food and they had we we, we missed the start but they had. Um, your performances like Swedish dancing and they had an Ikea flat pack race where I think people had to, you know, make, you know, make Ikea furniture and stuff. Uh, so it was lots of fun. Uh, and it was really great because you got to sort of watch with fans. So people were not, you know, it was in a theater. So people were really enjoying the show. I, I hate going to Eurovision parties where people talk throughout the entire thing. And you sure. You didn't yeah. have like judgy assholes like me commenting no, exactly. through the whole thing. Yeah. 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 You know, you're allowed to talk, but you've got to be able to, you've got to, you've got to watch. You can't be like, let's talk about this other thing. You yeah, know, you've got to be there to watch Eurovision. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's my, that was my weekend. Um, so on the question of booing, uh, no, I wouldn't have booed. Um, and uh, for a few reasons, and I think this is, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into the booing situation, but I, but, you know, I think that it, it frustrates me. Um, and it has frustrated me in the past, uh, and for a few reasons. Uh, and maybe these are the reasons we can sort of dive into. Um, the first is that, uh, and this isn't a big issue in itself, the first is that I think it can be quite selective in terms of what issues we pick out and what issues we don't pick out. Uh, and when you look at a competition like Eurovision, uh, Russia is one of many countries that have uh, anti-gay laws on the books. Uh, and it's interesting to pick out that country uh, and to, to focus on focus our attention on it. Naturally, it's probably because, you know, they've, they've introduced new legislation recently that's been a lot of profile, um, but it sort of isolates a particular, a particular issue in a way that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I, I can deal with that, I guess, if it weren't for the other two reasons that I have. I'm sorry, I'm going to go through a list of three reasons that I have why I wouldn't boo a country, um, but I could deal with that if it wasn't for the other two reasons. Um, the second reason I have, I think, is the one that I think about the most, and and this is that um, I think that booing an entrant in a competition like Eurovision ends up equating uh, the policies of a government uh, with the individuals of a country. And I think that I see this a lot, particularly around Eurovision and particularly around um, around this competition, where it's not just assumed that... Uh, it's the Russian government who is implementing this legislation and a Russian government that is quite oppressive to its people, um, but that it is connected to everybody in Russia. Everybody in Russia is, is, is the same. Everybody in Russia is uh, anti-gay. And I see that in, in sort of informal discussions quite a bit, you know, uh, you know, uh, for example, there was discussion on uh, on the entrant of the Russian entrant this year, who was, um, I would say, quite a hot Russian man, uh, and he people being like, attractive. he was quite attractive, and people saying, you know, oh, you know, I saw on Twitter people, oh, you know, he's hot, but God, he's Russian, so I couldn't go there, you know, that kind Ooh. of stuff. Yeah, you know, that sort of stuff is, I don't, I don't like that, and and that equating happens a lot, and. So, sorry to up... interrupt. I just wanted to say quickly, and and I guess ask as, as someone who knows. You know, obviously, it's much more familiar with Eurovision than I am, and and I I, I totally get what you're saying and, and and agree with it fundamentally. But, um, I mean, isn't that kind of Eurovision though? That like we kind of imagine that the whole yeah. competition is a proxy for the kind of his like historically situated culture wars of Europe and actual wars. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And if you look at the the entrant from Jamala who won the competition, that that plays a role. Um, but from a perspective of a queer person engaging in the in the in the contest, I'm not, you know, 
I'm less comfortable with it in this. I don't know. I'm not com particularly comfortable. You know, the politics of Eurovision is definitely there and strong on all, all the time there. Um, but I think it's problematic to equate an individual competitor necessarily with the with the policies of a country. Um, and I think sure. that it's particularly problematic uh, given what I was saying in the first instance about the, the picking out of issues. And I think because what happens uh, is that it can be quite... Um, maybe a little bit imperialist of sort of, or, you know, the, the assumption of a, a sort of, it's almost like the treating of a, of a, of a Eastern European country as a, as being a group of, group of almost savages or people who are, who are less, less evolved than us in the West. Sure. And, and I mean, we would never like, together. you know, we would never boo Germany for kind of monetary policy that's led to the yeah. collapse of a country yeah. like Greece, you know, for example. We weren't, we weren't booing the UK when they, you know, when they were invading Iraq, Yeah. you know, but you know, and even then, the politics of the invasion of Iraq wasn't an issue as you know the the politics of the Uca Ukraine Crimea situation is now. Uh, and so it is the specific isolation of particular countries. And I'm not defending Russia's you know situation, what what Russia's doing, but it's 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 Western countries who who sort of in these contexts often sort of put the place on, you know, uh, sort of put the pressure on the Eastern countries in the, in these scenarios. And I'm not, you know, in this, in this context, I'm not particularly comfortable with it because it's not the government who is being represented at these, at this contest. It's a con contestant who is, who, who you never know may have completely different views um, compared to their government. And it's harsh to, to assume that just because they're representing Russia at Eurovision, that they're, that they're the same. Um, and and maybe this goes to my third point, and that and this is something um, I, I give some credit to Dennis Altman because he talks about this in his latest book, The End of the Homosexual. Mm, I was, I was um, and so I want to give him credit at this point of time, and he talks about the uh, I can't remember how he describes it exactly, but it's kind of the the widening gap where you've got lots of progressive queer um, queer issues in Western countries and parts of the the Eastern world. Uh, Eastern Europe, um, Africa in particular, uh, who are introducing this new anti-queer um, legislation. And he talks about how uh, we could uh, sort of see this as, um, a lot of these countries see it as uh, reacting to a sort of colonialist era, and they see homosexuality as sort of an imposition of the Western world. Um, and that... Uh, if, does that make sense? And it's an imposition of, of the West. It was not not something that was ever in their cultural systems, and that that, that what they that it's you know the Western countries trying to impose these um, socially progressive ideals that don't meet their systems. Totally. I mean, uh, I, I suppose I should I should say here that I've I've spent quite a lot of time in Eastern Europe. Um, yep. I I lived in in Poland for a while when I was younger. Oh, I, I, lived in, I did an exchange semester in Prague. Um, I studied Russian at university. I'm like a bit I, I'm more so when I was younger, I guess, but I, I was kind of obsessed with like Slavic countries and, and so have um, thought quite a bit, particularly about the, the Russian situa situation. I think the comparison with Africa is is a good one. And it's it's kind of a useful way to say that Russia is, I think, quite a specific case in the context of Europe. Um, mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is absolutely right that the anti-gay stuff that's going... God, it's such a, like, kind of useless descriptor. Uh, the anti-gay <laughs> stuff that's going on. We should just, like, in case people don't know, I mean, what... Um, to, to sort of briefly, I guess, explain that, it what people are usually referring to is um, a kind of wave of 
homophobic policymaking and subsequent kind of violence that's gone on in Russia over the past sort of five, um, six, seven years. Yeah, right. Uh, that people have largely attributed to a, or you know, in in, in terms of a direct um, effect, the implementation of this uh, anti-gay propaganda legislation that came in um, around that time, which basically said that you couldn't promote, like, quote-unquote, promote homosexuality to children. And that's kind of been interpreted quite broadly and has... has um, been the focus for Western attention on anti-gay stuff mm. in in Russia, as well as the kind of reports of violence that have that have followed that. Yeah, and, yeah, and increasing reports of violence against gay people in Russia. Yes, um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think that that's kind of been outside of the sort of knee-jerk reactions from queer communities that we're talking about now. I think that's widely been interpreted as not even really about queer issues. Um, that it it's kind of you know. It's basically about the Russian government trying to increase, it, you know, win favour with the Russian people by uh, giving itself a point of distance from Western countries mm. by kind of asserting Russian culture and politics as this kind of uh, this different thing that rejects the West, that opposes Western ideals, yeah. uh, and and gay rights have just been become a symbol of that. Um, mm. But I think, I suppose, the reason I kind of mention it as a unique thing in Europe is because if you look at countries like, say, say Poland, that's often kind of seen to be quite a homophobic country, um, there have been huge, um, you know, I, I can say without a doubt that it's a less um, dangerous place to be for queer people now than it was 10 years ago, than it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, even mm. though they currently have a government that is very conservative and is um, doing a lot to, uh, you know, make people worried about this stuff, things have still been getting better for queer people there, um, despite that kind of rhetoric. So I think Russia is a kind of special case in Europe. Yeah, yeah. and I think going back to what you're talking about, about the reaction against Western values, and I think that this is kind of the, the risk that we, that we have in that um, we have to be careful about how we react to it because... Uh, from a Western perspective, we don't want to buy into that very narrative. So trying to um, specifically block the, you know, boo and block the Russian entrant, for example, at Eurovision, uh, might be seen as, you know, uh, look at the West, they're punishing us for our, for our value system. Uh, for the value system that we have, um, and it actually can reinforce the very narrative that they're building around this anti-gay legislation. Uh, and that is a threat, and it's really um, a difficult one because, you know, naturally, you know, this sort of stuff is stuff that, you know, I totally, I can I can see as like a, you know, hey, um, let's... Um, uh, you know, there's, there's, this, there's this awful legislation that's being implemented, there's this awful amount of violence, you know, and I can totally understand and I can totally feel the, the desire to do things like boo and enter into the Eurovision, um, but it's thinking, I guess, about how do we strategically help those queer communities and is is doing that actually going to help or is it going to reinforce the very message that they're using to implement it and, and make it much more difficult um, for queer communities in Russia who are struggling against this sort of legislation? Mm, totally, and I think that's the kind of, that's the, point that regardless of of the sort of um morality or otherwise of of um booing an entrant in a competition like eurovision you can point to those sort of practical effects you can i think as you just have make the argument pretty convincingly that 
um, that it's doing a disservice to queer communities in Russia. Though I feel like that kind of leads into um, another topic of discussion, you know, about like us kind of sitting here imagining what is best for queer communities mm. in Russia, which I think is really at the heart of this whole discussion. What would you say to that? Is that is that something that you've thought about? Like the yeah. I guess the kind of irony of 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 us sitting here imagining what is best or otherwise for these people that we don't really know a great deal about. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's um, uh, it's 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 a difficult thing to to deal with in terms of um, the desire, I guess, to help and to to figure out a way to help. Um, and to, to to provide support for people who are resisting this sort of stuff, which, you know, I think um, it is totally acceptable to, to acknowledge, you know, that this is an awful piece of legislation that is having awful impacts on people in Russia. And, you know, I, I don't sit in that view of where some people sit, you know, and this is, you know, this is just someone else's, this is just another culture and we can't inf interfere with other people's culture. Culture is a thing that changes and adapts and, you know, it is totally acceptable from from an outside perspective to say, you know, this is having awful impacts on, on people in that country and it's something that we should oppose. Um, but I think at the first entrant point, you know, either you know, and, and this is this is the difficult part of either being an individual compared to being an organisation who may want to support. Um, and at the first entrant point, particularly if you're an organisation who wants to support this group, um, the first entrant point has to be finding people in in that country uh, and and asking how can we support rather than going you know going in full steam full steam ahead and saying this is what we're going to do to support you. Uh, and I think um, we can often be bad at that um, you know in you know and just assume just assume that what we want is or, or what we want or how we see the issue is the same as how other people see the issue um, and that is not always the case you know the way that we see sexuality as a whole in the west uh, can be very very different to how people see it in other countries uh, and therefore how they might see this sort of legislation that's being implemented um, and it's important to have that sensitivity when you're going into an issue like this, because otherwise you can, again, buy into the very frame that is being used. If we use sort of Western notions of sexuality and homosexuality um, to try and defeat this sort of stuff, uh, then they can turn around and sort of, uh, the conservatives in these places can turn around and say, well, look, this is, you know, them using you know, Western ideals to try and, you know, them using the Western ideals, they're enforcing the Western ideals of sexuality onto us when that's not what we want as a country. Um, so you've got to be really sensitive to that. Um, and then I guess just naturally, you know, you want to support people on the ground. You don't want to be coming in from the outside to demand this is how it's going to be done. Um, now, how we deal with that as an individual or someone who goes to Eurovision and wants to boo the Russian entrant, I don't, I don't know. Uh, and that's that's a lot more, that's, that's much more difficult. For sure. Uh, and I wonder whether, uh, you know, I sort of say that, like, I feel like the, that point about go, trying to go to these communities and actually ask them what they want is like, you know, cannot be overstated. It's such a kind of, on in some, you know, it's more complex than it first appears maybe, but it, it it's on some level such a basic thing. Mm. And so I think fundamental to all of these to all to all of this stuff, you know that you that starting from a principle of like, yeah, actually kind of going what 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 is the best way that we could support you, just seems like such a, um, 
it's rare that a situation like this can have a kind of rule of thumb, but I, I just see that as such a clear one in these sorts of instances, and that if you're not doing that, anything that flows from your actions you know, has the potential to, to kind of go in, in, in bad places, as it does, I guess, if you're consulting with the communities, but at least it's happening on their terms then, or as, or as much as is, is possible. I was going to say, a good example of that um, is, um, so so uh, this, this stuff all happened in Russia in the lead-up uh, to the Sochi Winter Olympics, which was, God, what year was that, 2014? Um, so a couple of years ago, yeah, 2014. Um, so th this stuff had all happened in the lead up to that. And um, I remember at the time I was asked um, by someone, uh, by the media organisation Mamma Mia to write an article about whether we should, Australia should boycott the Winter Olympics because of this legislation. Um, and had a bunch of time to do some research about this question. And there were lots of talks about boycotting the Winter Olympics because of this. Um, and I spoke to part of my research, I spoke to uh, the organisation All Out, which is a um, big uh, sort of gay rights org that's based out of the US. Uh, and they were, they were doing a lot of um, campaigning on, on Russia at the time. And uh, what they said, um, so I spoke to their, their director or CEO or whoever was the head of the org, um, and I was interested because they'd done a lot of campaigning and I wanted to know what, you know, how they got to where they got to and they weren't campaigning for a boycott. Um, and what they said is that they'd spoken to people on the ground, that they were working with people on the ground, which was their first point of contact, which made me very happy. Um, and, I'm, and I, you know, I'm sure there's potential that there were problems with this. I have not, you know, I, I got to speak to one person once, so I'm not going to talk about their entire campaign strategy. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, what those people had said is that boycotting would actually be harmful and they don't want to see the entire Olympics being destroyed because of this issue because it would create all of these problems um, for 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 them because then the gay people would be the ones who destroyed this major event in Russia that you know the government was really proud of and the government wanted to promote. Um, so boycotting was seen as like a, a potentially disastrous option um, because it's you know destroying the national pride of the country for a year. Mm. Um, and so instead, what they what they were campaigning for was pressure to be put you know, to be put on the government and a little bit of international pressure and they wanted companies who were sponsoring their games to come out and speak publicly against the laws and things like that. They wanted the IOC to do that sort of public pressure. So it was a little bit of like, you know, we're not going to ruin the games, but we're going to put you under it. We're going to, we're going to shame you a little bit over this issue. And, you know, the, the strategy discussions that aside, what was good was that they'd, that they'd recognised there was so much knee-jerk reaction to say, we have to boycott the Olympics, we have to boycott the Olympics. Whereas queer people in Russia at the time uh, were saying, no, don't do that, because that's that could be really disastrous for us. Totally. And I think, like, regardless of whether or not um, boycotts are effective, and I, I tend to think that they're not, um, you know, often, often kind of not a good idea, I think we should be kind of sceptical of any sort of a boycott is, as you've just said, often a kind of knee-jerk reaction to these sorts mm. of issues from queer communities in Australia and in countries like Australia. And I think it's maybe interesting to dig into why that might be. And I think, you know, the more... Um, this is me being maybe overly cynical, but I, I feel like it, it's... Um, 
people go straight to a boycott because it's easy, basically. I, I think it's, you know, boycotts are often kind of lazy activism. They require you, they don't actually require you to do anything. They require you to not do something. Um, they require you to do kind of no real research into anything. Uh, and they allow you to sort of change nothing about your life and behavior while feeling good about you know, the, your kind of moral foundation as someone who is not taking part in these things. And I think they fit kind of neatly into that, our, our kind of, um, what do we call it? The, our smarmy, um, <laughs> holy trinity of, of, uh, of, um, queer issues, uh, or new kind of gay politics, uh, in, in the sort of, um, you know, outrage against, I think one of the one of them was outrage against people who um, do or say something that we don't like in, yeah, in public, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think this kind of fits neatly into that. Where where it, yeah, all it requires you to do is have an emotional response about something, and and that's it. Yeah, and look, and I, and I don't, you know, you say it's easy, and I think, and I agree, it is. It is an easy reaction, um, and it's something that you can almost do straight away. You can claim a boycott straight away without having to do that sort of research into the issue. And I and I don't blame people for that situation when you want to help, uh, you want you see a, totally, see an totally. injustice, um, but. You know, in a, in an issue like this, um, and you know, and we haven't really spoken about the, the sort of the African experience, which is another another experience of this. In issues like this, you can't just be easy. You can't just you know jump straight ahead. You've got to unfortunately you have to sort of step back for a minute and go. Actually, what's the way we can we can we can affect change in this area? Um, and you know, my my experience is that you know I think boycotts can be valuable at times. So I think you know, for example, the North Carolina. Uh, um, bathroom bill. I think other U.S. states boycotting North Carolina um, because of that bill. You know, it's quite an effective strategy because that 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 has internal pressure that is different to, and it's really you know you can't see it as you know another country imposing something on on that state. Sure. So I think that that's the potential of a really good example of a boycott. But I don't think uh, you know the 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 Russian the Sochi Olympics was a good example. I don't think boycotting Russia will help um, in any in any situation because it will just reinforce the very narrative that is being used to promote this legislation and so you have to think of other ways to do things you know and you know there's been, there's, there's good examples of that so you know there's there's been a lot of involvement from the christian right in the west you know in the, in a lot of this legislation that's been going around the world particularly the legislation that's been hitting uh, that's been implemented in parts of africa and so and in russia know, there have been instances of of um right-wing politicians having meetings right-wing mm -hmm. american politicians having meetings with high-ranking russian politicians about this stuff yeah, and I guess maybe that even goes back to the the sort of the, the the point I was bringing out before about this bit of you know the the imperialist idea of you know look at those those Russian savages who are all anti-gay when there are people in our own backyard who are actively supporting this legislation and they're the ones we could be targeting they're the ones we could be having a go at and there's ways that we should be involved engaging with our governments as well about how they engage in international you know stuff international negotiations and 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 stuff around this to 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 put the pressure points at the right places to make mm. that occur. I mean, and to be but, fair in in the instance of Russia, that there has been some of that. There have been yeah, um, queer communities in Australia engaging with uh, foreign ministers about what they're doing. And I actually think in some instances there have been interesting um, dialogues uh, happening there. So, you know, it's not all um, – there's good stuff going on. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, not to de deny that at all. Um, so that you know, but but uh, you know, and what I'm saying is that there's that stuff seems, I guess, almost uh, it's less exciting. It's it's a bit, it's a bit duller. It's a bit harder. It's a bit more grinding. Um, but it's it, yeah, bureaucratic. You know, and I'm not a big fan of bureaucracy, and it's not something that I want to you know champion all the time. Um, but in the long run, it might be the kind of stuff that can have a real impact rather than the instant. You know, let's boycott, let's boo, let's let's do this sort of stuff. Let's let's have that knee-jerk reaction. Mm. I mean, one of the things I'm really uh, interested in, and maybe we can kind of finish up on this, is mm. um, thinking about, I guess, that knee-jerk reaction of wanting to do something. I mean, you kind of alluded before to the question of, I mean, what can individuals, you know, potentially actually do to affect change on these sorts of things? And I think that we... Um, we, we have this discourse around human rights issues and just kind of social issues generally in the world where each individual person can um, make a difference, can, you know, you can live your life in a way that helps people all around the world and makes the world a better place. I mean, is there a point, unless you're doing things like, you know, you have the backing of a not-for-profit or a large NGO or a government that allows you to kind of go and work with people on the ground in a place like Russia or, or wherever to work with communities and, and, and try to affect change, um, that way, I mean, is there a point at which a lot of people maybe who want to engage in this stuff, a, a useful thing to do is to go, well, maybe you can't, maybe there's actually not much you as an individual can do? Um, that's a tough question, isn't it? Uh, you know, because it could be taken as an excuse for apathy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think... Maybe this is probably a topic that we could have for another day that we could we could run into quite a while for quite a while. But I think that there's an interesting discourse about like what can an individual do? Uh, um, you know, you know, if there's an issue. What can an individual do? And you see this a lot in sort of progressive left wing politics at the moment. You know, climate change. What can an individual do to stop climate change and all that sort of stuff? And I think that that is where we need to challenge the discourse at the starting point um, is thinking about, instead of thinking about what can individuals do, think about what can groups do and what groups can we sign up to, to help, um, to help affect this sort of change. Uh, and some places there aren't groups to sign up to, but there is always online spaces where you can sign up to particular groups. Um, and I think that it is helping build some of that infrastructure that is what an individual can do, um, that is much stronger than than doing something online or you know sitting at your home behind your computer going to a meeting you know for a couple of hours with another group and figuring out some collective action uh, and that has the capacity to do this research and to engage in some of the boring stuff and engage in these issues is far stronger than going oh what can i do as an individual okay i'll sign this petition or i'll boycott this company or do that sort of stuff probably takes about the same amount of energy in the end um but it's you know it'll have that sort of longer term building up capacity stuff obviously there's a whole range of issues around that you know in terms of whether there are those sorts of groups to engage in what they look like whether you agree with the politics etc 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 um but you know fl flipping some of that discourse around what can an individual do maybe an individual can't do in everything if they're isolated from other individuals who want to do that sort of thing um but if we come together as individuals to create collectives i think that we have a much stronger position um to be able to think about this but also the capacity to engage in the difficult thinking about how we can actually help um rather than going okay as an individual this is my reaction i'll just do that i agree completely and what a wonderfully positive note to end on 
that's it for us today. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, before we finish up completely, I just wanted to mention Simon and I have been talking a lot about the fact that our last podcast, probably like half of it, wasn't even about queer issues at all. Um, and, and I think that's uh, kind of says a lot about the, the kind of podcast that we want to make and the kinds of issues that often we're interested in. Um, and it's it's a topic that we the, we want to return to specifically in in more detail. So um, so we're we're hoping to kind of get stuck into that and, and talk about what that means. So if that's if that's something that you uh, were thinking about when you listened to the last episode, we will hopefully be doing a lot more of it. Um, but you know, in the meantime, we'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks, uh, which you can find on queers.podomatic.com. Uh, and you can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search for Queers. And please uh, leave us a ranking and a review. Um, that helps us uh, get up in the charts and helps other people find our podcast. In the meantime, you can catch me at Simon Copland on Twitter. I'm at Ben C. Riley. Uh, thanks, and see you all next time. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.